Now, while they're making their way out, the rest of you turn to Numbers chapter 11, 12, 13, 14. Thanks for standing in honor of the opening and the reading of God's Word. I'm going to read the first three verses of Numbers chapter 11, which lays the foundation for what I've titled Unnecessary Drama. Anybody experiencing some unnecessary drama in life? Anybody got daughters, right? No, I'm just kidding. All right, unnecessary drama. Here we go. Numbers chapter 11. Now the people began complaining openly before the Lord about hardship. The Lord heard His anger burned and the fire from the Lord blazed among them and consumed the outskirts of the camp. Good reason not to kind of hang out on the outskirts of Christianity, right? Better be all in. Get in the middle of the camp. Then the people cried out to Moses and prayed to the Lord and the fire died down. So that place was called Taberah because the Lord's fire had blazed among them. Father, we thank You for the warnings in Your Word about the grumbling and complaining. Our attitude sometimes in life unnecessary drama that we bring into our relationship with you, our families, and sometimes even the church. Help us to learn from your Word, even from examples that tell us and show us what not to do. Help us to learn this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Unnecessary drama. Now, I subtitled this message a phrase that you've probably heard from your parents, and then when you became a parent, you said it yourself a few times. Don't make me turn this car around. Remember, this is a, a, a series on a journey. We're talking about the time the Israelites were between the Exodus before they entered the Promised Land, and all that they went through on the way. And we're reminded as Christians, at the moment we get saved, that's our Exodus. We are called out of darkness into His marvelous light. We're in a new relationship with Jesus. We're on a journey, but we're not home yet. This is not heaven yet. Uh, we're still part of His kingdom, and we're still on His journey, but we're not home yet. And, and so we've heard that. I, I wrote down some other things that parents have said that we thought we would never say until we became parents, and I guarantee you somewhere along the way we've said it. How about this one? Don't make, the, don't make that face. Your face will freeze like that. Anybody ever heard that from parents before? Find yourself saying it when your kids are doing all those contortions with their face. How about this one? Did you hate it when your parents said this, but you repeated it? If all your friends jumped off a cliff, you're going to jump too? Here's another one. What part of no don't you understand? Somebody even picked up on that one and made a country song out of it. Here's the one that I've always hated and said uh, that I wouldn't say, and I think it has actually slipped out a few times. Because I said so. Enough said, right? Here's one I know that I've said. As long as you live under my roof, <laughs> and then fill in the blank, right? As long as you live under my roof, I've had it up to here. Where's it, you know? How are we supposed to respond to that one as kids? I've had it up to here, and you're like, well, Mom, you're short. That's not too high. You know, so. Someday, now I haven't said this one yet. Some of you have. Someday, you're going to have a child just like you. Said that one? You're going to pay for your raising 
sit down at the table, you don't like the meal. We all learn something at a very early age in life, and that is there are starving children in China, right? And did you not want to box it up and send it to China? (laughs) Yeah, we'll send it to China. We're not starving. I think I've said this one before, Kent, but sorry. I brought you into this world, I can take you out. Actually, your mom brought you into this world. (laughs) I will give you something to cry about. I'm glad I'm not the only one that said that one. And then the one I mentioned, don't make me turn this car around. There's another one I want to preface the rest of my remarks with, and it's an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. That's important because I want you to know as the body of Christ here at Trinity Baptist Church, I want you to know as a church family that this message is preventative medicine. I am not responding to anything anybody has said or done. As a matter of fact, I was uh, so blessed. I had made some comments last weekend. It just seemed like God put so many of you into my life to give me a word of encouragement, the things people have said and done and, and the way people have blessed me. I was just overwhelmed by the end of the day last Sunday night to find myself having been encouraged and blessed by so many different people, and it was, it was unsolicited. I don't know who prompted it except for the Holy Spirit of God, but I was very grateful. And so I'm excited, and I know when, when I get together with our staff and the leadership of this church, we all feel overwhelmed and blessed by the encouragement and the support we get from the body of Christ. So this is not in response to anything, and if you're visiting here and if you're wondering, man, why is he nailing them on that? It's because an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. And it's part of our spiritual maturation as we grow in Christ and we understand the importance of applying these principles. You see, Israel had decided that they were going to grumble and complain on this journey. They had just decided to make it a way of life. They're going to grumble, they're going to complain, and you've heard it in the car before. You've made the statement, parents, don't make me turn this car around because it's not worth going on this vacation, it's not worth going to this restaurant, it's not worth going to this event if I'm going to put up with whining and grumbling and complaining all along the way. Israel had decided they were going to grumble and play. They were complaining about the provisions they had received and had not received. They were complaining about leadership again and again. They were complaining about each other. And as we journey home, there will be trials, there will be temptations, there will be good times, there will be bad times, there will be very difficult seasons of life, and we have to decide what kind of attitude we're going to have. We have to decide how we're going to react. Are we going to whine and gripe and complain and grumble and cause problems for everybody else? Often, It's as Christians, we can be whining and pouting and grumbling and complaining and be such a turn off to those that are outside of the faith that they say, I don't know where they're going, but I don't want to go there with them. I don't want to be a part of that trip, but that's the way they're going to behave, but that's the way they're going to act. And in doing so, often along the way, we forfeit the abundant Christian living that we were called to, and we become a burden and and a curse to the people around us. Living out our faith should be the most exciting thing to do with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so whether it's going on, on a trip with teenagers on a bus somewhere, whether it's, it's going with my family to serve the Lord in some capacity, whether it's planning to go actually overseas like we're um, planning right now in, in March to go on a trip to Haiti, Nothing like going on a mission trip with the people of God. Nothing so encouraging. Nothing bless your heart like going with the people of God unless you get a couple of people who want to grumble and complain about everything and not be flexible and not go with the flow. And so all that the Christian life involves calls us to have the attitude of Christ to embrace it. What can we learn about this 
this most uh, or these most intense naysaying passages. It, it, there's a lot of it in the journey, but it seems to be concentrated in these three or four chapters right here in the, the middle of the book of Numbers. What can we learn from their journey from Egypt to the Promised Land? How should those who are Christians, how should those who should be Christ-minded, those who perhaps are even in Christian leadership, respond when that stuff starts taking place around us? Well, the first thing that we need to keep in mind is something we can learn from Moses here in this passage. Moses wasn't perfect. He was very real. He had his own failures. Very real. But there was a humble consideration of what was said. There was a humble consideration of all the complaining. A humble consideration of any validity of the complaints. We read those first passages and we kind of get an overview of what's going to just continue to happen. And in verse 4 of Numbers chapter 11, it says, Contemptible people among them had a strong craving for other food. The Israelites cried again and said, Who will feed us meat? Oh, if you've been anywhere with teenage boys, you've heard that, right? we got to have something to eat. We remember the free fish we ate in Egypt, along with the cucumbers. Yeah, we were slaves, but we remember the free stuff. There are people in the United States today who will sell their freedom to have certain provisions made for them. Grumbling and complaining. Where, where are the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, the garlic? But now our appetite is gone and there's nothing. To look at, but this manna, they were excited about it at one point. Too much of a good thing. The manna resembled coriander seed, and the appearance was like that of bdellium, and the people walked about and gathered it, and they ground it on a pair of grinding stones or crushed it. They prepared it. The passage goes on to describe in different ways, but there's, there was only so many things you could do with manna. In verse 10, Moses heard the people, family after family, crying at the entrance of their tents. The Lord was very angry. Moses was also provoked. So Moses asked the Lord, Why are you brought, or why have you brought such trouble on your servant? Why are you angry with me, and why do you burden me with all these people? It's as if Moses was saying what I've heard pastors say before ministry would be wonderful if it wasn't for the people. Wait a minute, it wouldn't be ministry if it weren't for people, right? Uh, did I conceive all these people? Did I give them birth? So you should tell me, carry them at your breast as nurse, a nursing woman carries a baby to the land you swore to give their forefathers. He's, what he's saying is they are so infantile and they're grumbling and complaining. They're being so childish. Have I got to carry them like a nursing mother? He couldn't handle the weight of all this. I can't carry, verse 14, all these people by myself. It's too much for me. The Lord then answered Moses, and I think here he's reminding him of something that his father-in-law Jethro had already explained earlier. He says, bring me 70 men from Israel, known to you as elders and officers of the people. Take them to the tent of meeting and have them stand there with you. Then I will come down and I will speak with you and I will take some of the Spirit who is on you and put the Spirit on them and they will help you bear the burden of the people so that you do not have to bear 
it by yourself. Why do I say a humble consideration of the validity of their complaints? Listen, there was no excuse for their whining and complaining and their grumbling and their their doubting God and thinking it would have been better off if they had never got saved to start with. There was no excuse for their spiritual immaturity. But at the same time, it was as if God was saying to Moses, and sometimes the Spirit of God says to us, now listen for a moment to some of their complaints because while they may be invalid, there are some adjustments that you can make in your life to maybe not have all of the complaining or all of the grumbling taking place. So Moses took the complaints to the Lord in prayer. First of all, very graciously, very very genuinely. But then there were times where in his prayer life, he was venting and, and frustrated. But regardless of his attitude, at least he took it to the Lord in, in prayer. And so when you're, you're having a, a difficult season of life, and maybe it's your kids that are driving you nuts, maybe it's your spouse who's driving you nuts, maybe it's uh, brothers and sisters in Christ or people you work with, and you're saying, Lord, they're grumbling and complaining about everything I do. I can't ever seem to please these people. Stop for a moment and give some humble consideration to, is there something about what I'm doing and how I'm doing it that could change? It may be 99% on them, but is there 1% that's on you that could be changed, that could make things better? But see, what happened here as a result, Moses got some advice from the Lord. He became better organized as a leader, and he learned to rely more on the power of God and allowing other people to serve under the power of the Spirit of God as well. The Spirit of God that was on Moses, things were handed. See, Moses was trying to do everything by himself, a lesson that he had already learned not to be doing. He, had, he was trying to do everything by himself. Everything had to be done his way and in his time by him. And, and, and he was drawing some complaints from others in the process. And so by stopping and, and taking this to the Lord in prayer, there was this humble consideration. Now, wait a minute, maybe there is just a little bit of validity to their complaints. And as a leader, I can change and I can grow. As a pastor, I've had to do that in the past where somebody may not have appreciated a certain way a certain thing was led, and, and maybe I thought it was immature or infantile in the way the complaint was made, and then I step back and I say, you know what, I could have done this better, or I could grow here, or I could be more transparent here, or I could get some help here. And so always stop and say there, there might be a little bit of validity. Remember this, perception is only perception, but perception is real to the one who perceives it. Like that just went right by a lot of people, I could tell. Perception is only perception, but perception is real to the person who perceives it. If they perceive that things aren't going well in your home, in your community, in your church, in your workplace, in your school, if people perceive that things aren't going like they should be going or not being done right, whether they're right or wrong in their perception, It's real to them, and so you need to address it, and you need to say, if nothing else, is there a way that I can communicate this more clearly? So we start with this humble consideration of where we are. If you have people who criticize you, criticism from your kids, or criticism from your parents, or criticism from your teachers, amen? Criticism from students, employees, church members, friends. No matter how invalid, no matter how unwarranted, no matter how ungodly. Ask yourself, is there an element of truth to this? Could I make some adjustments? Sometimes we're called to 
remove the log out of our own eye so that we can take the speck out of somebody else's eye? But do you realize there's other times where you have to take the speck out of your own eye so you can remove the log out of somebody else's eye? This was one of those cases for Moses. Yeah, the log was in the eye of the, the ones who were grumbling and complaining around him, but he did have a little speck in his own eye that he needed to deal with. And so sometimes it's the opposite of the log in your own eye. Sometimes it's the speck in your own eye. And if it's only a speck, it's still a speck. And if you can get some help removing the speck, remove the speck. There's an area in your life where you can grow. Then help them get a vision. Encourage them. Maybe they have valid concerns, valid questions, that as you grow spiritually, you can respond to the complaining around you and begin to eliminate it. Sometimes it's just life is hard. The journey's tough. The climb is longer than they anticipated. It happened to Tina and I one time. When, since we've got the anniversary coming up, I'll tell this story. But before I proposed to Tina, I was trying to think. We had already talked about marriage and, and, and a future together. And I wanted the proposal to be a surprise. And I was so afraid that when I got ready to propose, it would not surprise her. And she was going to figure out, I know exactly what he's up to. So I would try to think of some things to do so that she would think, this is the moment it's going to happen. He's about to propose to me. And then not propose at that moment. <laughs> kind of mean, isn't it? And not propose at that moment, but wait until the right moment. Because I already had the perfect setup for the proposal that if you haven't heard before, I'll tell you about later. Most of you have heard. Um, and so one of those times... I had a, a group of youth over at Western North Carolina, your Ridgecrest. Tina and I went down to Black Mountain because when I was in high school, like several of you, I had gone with the Fellowship of Christian Athletes on a retreat to Black Mountain, North Carolina, and we had climbed the mountain, which is a pretty intense climb, especially about the last one-third of the climb. Now, I know people like Pastor Ben run all the way to the top, but that's it's still an intense climb for most of us. And, and so I took Tina. I'd, I'd been on top of that mountain before. I had seen the view from the top. And I thought, surely we'll get up there and she'll think I'm going to propose. And then I want. And then from then on, she'll never try to guess if this is going to be it or not. And so we started up. And there were times that toward that last part of the mountain where we're on those rock faces climbing up. And she would say, are we almost there? Pretty good view from right here. Are we almost there? And I'd go up a little bit further than her. I'd say, oh, but you've got to come this far. We're almost there. And I'd help her up to the next level and... and, and are we almost there? And I'd, I'd go a little bit further. Oh, yeah, I can see the top from here. Come on, a little bit further. And all along the way, she was asking what kids ask when you go on a journey. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? How much farther? Are we almost there? And, and so I had to understand the validity of her complaints because this was getting to be a rough climb and encourage her all along the way. Go ahead of her, get a view, and say, now come on and see the view from here. Spiritually speaking, that's the way you have to live your life sometimes as a leader, as a parent, as a co-worker, as a friend. You have to say, you know what, I'm going to go a little bit further. I'm not going to get too far ahead of them. I'm going to listen to the validity of their questions and complaints, and I'm going to help them up. We're going to work together and see the view from the top. Moses was trying to be that kind of leader. The Lord was reminding Moses to be that kind of a leader. Now, as we work our way through just kind of a summary of these next few chapters, I want you to see that there are times when, after that humble consideration of the validity of the complaints, you do have to move on. And there are seasons where there has to be an honest confrontation when, when the complaints are hurting people. When the grumbling and the complaining and the whining 
are, are slowing down the whole family or the, the whole body of Christ in a situation. There are times where, where leaders have to give an honest confrontation and the Lord just has to deal with people in a way we wish the Lord would never have to deal with people. Look at chapter 12, this famous passage in this complaining section of, of Numbers. Miriam and Aaron criticized Moses. Now it's family. Now it's his brother and sister. Criticizing, and criticism is tough, but when it comes from your own family, when you're like, hey, everybody else can turn their back on me, but as long as i got my family, I'm okay. Now it's his brother and his sister. Because of the Cushite woman he married, for he had married a Cushite woman, they said, does the Lord speak only through Moses? Does he not also speak through us? And the Lord heard it. Moses was very... I find it interesting that Moses wrote this. Now, I have a solid view of biblical inspiration. I believe the Holy Spirit inspired every word. I believe he inspired Moses to write this. I'm glad that I believe that the Holy Spirit inspired Moses to write this because I find it an interesting thing to say. Moses was a very humble man. I've never met anybody who's proud of their humility before. But Moses was a very humble man, more so than any man on the face of the earth. I'm so humble. I'm the most humble man on the face of the earth. I do believe he was led by the Holy Spirit to, to pin that. I just find it interesting. Suddenly the Lord said to Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, you three come out to the tent of meeting. I remember when the noise and the fights would get bad upstairs in our house and my dad might be downstairs watching TV. And, and there comes a time where enough's enough. And he says, Y'all, get down here right now. Somebody's in trouble, and I better think of a clever way to say it was Toby's fault. I mean, that was usually the things that was going through my mind. Y'all, get down here right now. That's what the Lord's doing with these three siblings. The Lord descended in a pillar of cloud, stood at the entrance to the tent, summoned Aaron and Miriam. When the two of them came forward, He confronts them. He says, listen to what I say. I believe this was a, a theophany, a, a manifestation of God, just, much, just like the burning bush was. It says, listen to what I say. If there is a prophet among you from the Lord, I make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my household. I speak with him directly, openly, and not in riddles. He sees the form of the Lord. So why were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses, the Lord's anger burned against them, and he left. God expresses emotions. We are created in the image of God. We are an emotional people. God expresses his emotions. He says, I, I burned with anger against the way that you were treating your servant. And you were looking for something to nitpick. Particularly in this situation, they were upset because Moses had married a Cushite, a, a Midianite, an Ethiopian, we might say, someone who was much darker skinned and from a different race than he was from. And they got mad about that. I think they were really upset and jealous over all of his leadership, but they were saying, who do you think you are that you can marry? Despite the fact that this Cushite woman loved the Lord, had embraced Moses, had embraced Moses' God, her family had embraced the God of Israel, but they're using it to nitpick. It was a little bit of racism in the camp here. You married someone of a different race. God confronts this attitude. The Lord's anger burned against them. As the cloud moved away from the tent, Miriam's skin suddenly became diseased as white as snow. 
when Aaron turned toward her, he saw that she was diseased and said to Moses, My Lord, please don't hold against us this sin we have so foolishly committed. Please don't let her be like a dead baby whose flesh is half eaten away when she comes out or when he comes out of his mother's womb. Then Moses cried out to the Lord, God, please heal her. Even in the sibling rivalry, Moses is showing forgiveness. Moses is praying for healing. The Lord answered Moses, said, if her father had merely spit in her face, wouldn't she remain in disgrace for seven days? Let her be confined outside the camp for seven days. After that, she may be brought back. So Miriam was confined outside the camp for seven days. And the people did not move on until Miriam was brought back in. See, there was patience, there was restoration. But there was this honest confrontation where God said, okay, you're grumbling, you're complaining, you're nitpicking, you're fussing about something, you're wrong, and God says, I'm going to call it what it is, it's sin. And not only did it call it sin, He allowed Miriam to experience the feeling of uncleanness like Miriam had tried to make Moses' wife feel. Miriam had said, she's not of our race, she's off limits, she's unclean. If you go to Acts chapter 10, you'll see that Jesus doesn't appreciate that much. He got upset with Peter for calling unclean what God had made clean through the Gospel. He said, don't call unclean what I've made clean. She had made the wife, her own sister-in-law, feel dirty and unclean and unworthy, and God says, okay, you find out how that feels for about seven days. There are times in our life that God says, this can't go on. And He confronts it. God had to show Aaron Aaron and Miriam the seriousness of their critical and condemning actions. Their critical and condemning actions were clearly pointed out as rebellion, bringing disharmony, and it was confronted as graciously and tactfully, but as directly as could be. Say, what if I'm a Christian and I find myself in that situation where somebody is just causing all kinds of problems? They're grumbling, they're complaining, they're whining, and it's bringing about division in my family. It's destroying my home. Or it's bringing about division in the church. How do we deal with that? Galatians 6 tells us how to deal with it. It says, you who are spiritual, first of all. In other words, we've got to get that log and the speck out of our own eye. You who are spiritual... Restore them in love. Do it with a spirit of meekness. Tactfully, graciously, but directly. There are times in our lives, there are times in ministry, there are times in churches, times in families, where you have to have that come to Jesus meeting in, in, in the home, a dad, or in the church, a pastor, or the church leadership. But somebody has to say, this behavior, this attitude has to stop today. It's just got to stop. I love you. And I pray that as we move forward, that we move forward together. But if we're not moving forward together, we're moving forward, and your attitude absolutely has to stop. There was an honest confrontation when the complaints were hurting the whole movement of God, hurting the leadership. Clear back-talking or smart-mouthing of a child has to be confronted directly and told, this will not continue. There are times a dad may have to tell a son or a daughter, you will not speak to my wife that way. You will embrace the leadership that God has placed us in. You will respect those who are in authority. You will respect those who are in spiritual authority. You will respect those who are the authorities that God has placed in your life inside and outside the home. 
These were racist remarks that were dividing a people. But it could be gossip or criticism dividing a family. Or gossip or criticism dividing a church family. And that's when there's got to be an honest confrontation because the complaints are hurting people. That is one of the most difficult things I've ever had to do in ministry, but when you have to sit down with someone and with as much love and you have to depend completely on the Spirit of God, you have to say, hey, part of your criticism may be valid, it may be invalid, and I'm going to grow and learn, but this absolutely cannot go on. It's got to stop. For the sake of the kingdom, it has to stop. And then we move to this third level that we hope we don't have to move through literally. And that's the horrible consequences when there is no genuine repentance. The horrible consequences when there is no genuine repentance. Chapters 13 and 14, I'll read some of it, but you know the whole story. It says, The Lord spoke to Moses and said, Send men to scout out the land of Canaan. I am giving to the Israelites. Send one man who is a leader among them from each of their ancestral tribes. Moses sent them from the wilderness of Paran at the Lord's command. All the men were leaders in Israel. And he gives you the list of leaders. This is the cream of the crop. This is the best of the best. They're calling a a ministry team meeting together of the go-getters, of the courageous men, and and they're going to send them. They're courageous enough to go in and spy out the land. And so he gives you the names in verses 4 through 15. Then in verse 17, when Moses sent them to scout out the land of Canaan, he told them, Go up this way to the Negev, then go down to the hill country, see what the land is like, and whether the people who live there are strong or weak, few or many. Is the land they live in good or bad? Are the cities they live in encampments or fortifications? Is the land fertile or unproductive? Are there trees in it or not? Be courageous. Bring back some fruit from the land. It was the season for the first ripe grapes. And you know the story. They went into the land, they spied out the land, and they saw that it was fruitful, they saw that it was productive, they saw that it was a land flowing with milk and honey, and they remembered the size of the ripe grapes, and they were like, man, this is awesome. These were courageous explorers. And they went on this journey, they went on this exploration, and they came back, and they bring a report, and they say, yes, it looks good, it looks awesome. God has... uh, designed such a beautiful land and we can't wait to embrace it, but we can't take them. There's giants in the land. There are fortifications in the land. We will surely be defeated. A group of courageous men lost their courage. They came back and instead of being a ministry team, they decided to have a committee meeting. I remember hearing a pastor when I was a teenager you know, and, and this is one reason when I came to Trinity, I said, let's use the word ministry team instead of committee. But I remember a pastor that said, a giraffe is a horse that a committee put together. Sometimes when we think of committees instead of teams, committees like to sit around, it's as if somebody says, you know, I'm at, I'm at the, the bottom of the totem pole in my workplace. I don't ever get to make the decisions. I'm, I'm sort of the the, the run of the litter in my family, or in every area of life, I never have an opportunity to speak my opinion or let my voice be heard. And so some people, to overcome that, I'm not saying it's anyone here, but an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. 
But some people to overcome that say, well, if I can become a part of a church, it's real easy. To They're always looking for somebody to serve, and so I can get on a committee where I can be the one in charge and making all the decisions. So they decided to have a committee meeting. Committees, rather than just going with what, the God, what God says, sometimes commit the sin of a lack of faith. And try to operate according to the flesh rather than according to the Spirit. And they vote on something. Church family, I do believe in the priest of the believers and all of us need to go before God and hear His voice. But if God has said something in this book right here, we don't have to vote on that. If God has said it, you know, Bumper Secret used to say, God says it, that settles it. Or, or God said it, I believe it, that settles it. If God said it, that settles it, whether we believe it or not. And God had already told them what He wanted them to do, but they came back and they had a committed committee meeting and they explained away any valid courage that they would have had to embrace the land. All except for, verse 30, we see Caleb speak up. Caleb quieted the people in the presence of Moses and said, we must go up and we must take possession of the land because we can certainly conquer it. Verse 31, but the men who had gone up with him responded, we can't go up against the people because they are stronger than we are. Caleb had the attitude of, we can because God has given it to us. The rest of the, those on the committee, other than Joshua, were saying, we can't. God is a God of we can, not a God of we can't. We can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. So just to kind of summarize what you see in chapters 13 and then in chapter 14. There are seasons of life where God says, if you're going to grumble and complain, if you're not going to have faith, if you're not going to have a good attitude, you're going to make me turn this car around. That's what happened. See, it wasn't just a threat. We, we make the threat. We, we might say it a dozen times. Don't make me turn this car around. Y'all better behave. Don't make me turn this car around. When I say that, you know what I'm really thinking in my mind? I'm really thinking in my mind, if I turn the car around, I'm punishing me. I want to go to this event. I want to go on this trip. I want to have a good time. I'm not going to turn the car around. And so I'm making a vain threat. We make a threat as a parent. If we say, I will turn the car around, we've got to be willing to turn the car around. God was willing to turn the car. God said, okay, okay, that's it. You're not going in. Except for Joshua and Caleb and the next generation, the rest of you are not going in, including Moses. Now, there is some grace in that story that Moses was taking, taken up on Mount Nebo. He was allowed to see the promised land, but they missed out on something big time. There were serious consequences. Horrible consequences. They had to settle for less than what God had in store for them. They missed out on the promised land. What happens when we bring unnecessary drama on ourselves or those around us? I was in class not long ago and teaching about Adam and Eve and their sin in the garden. We talked about how they were taken out of the garden, but we see a picture of redemption. We see a picture of the, that first blood that was shed that when God clothed Adam and Eve with the skins of the animals. And, and a student asked a good question, said, well, wait a minute, if there's redemption, if God forgives, why were they not allowed immediately back into the garden? And, and I was able to teach about the whole picture of Scripture and, and, and what the ultimate return to the garden will be in eternity. But I said, but in the meantime, we need to understand something about forgiveness. 
forgiveness means the heart of God or the heart of somebody else who is doing the forgiving releases someone completely from that spirit of condemnation. But the lifting of condemnation does not mean the lifting necessarily of consequences. There are still consequences. It might mean that the child still gets the discipline even though the parent forgives the child. But it could be more serious. And I gave this illustration. I said, uh, this person said, explained to me that he was a pretty fast runner. I said, you imagine you, how many of you are fast runners? How many of you run track? Some students raised their hands. So could you imagine you're a fast runner? You're a champion runner. But you go out on Friday night and you get totally wasted. You fill your body with alcohol. You get in a car. You head down the highway. You get involved in an accident. You lose your legs and take the life of another individual. Let's say that after that accident, the parents of the, the individual whose life you took forgives you. Your parents forgive you. God forgives you. Is that possible? Yes. But will you ever be the kind of runner you once were? No. There will always be consequences. There will always be scars. There are horrible consequences in our lives. When we bring unnecessary drama on ourselves are those that we influence. That is why Paul gives that warning that we introduced this series with in Hebrews. Today, if you hear His voice, don't harden your heart. You're making decisions that if you become presumptuous, you may never live long enough to experience God's grace and forgiveness. But even if you do experience God's grace and forgiveness, there are going to be consequences. I know folks who love Jesus with all their heart today who are married to someone else who loved Jesus with all their heart. And today they find themselves young people saying, we love each other, but we so wish that we had only known one another in a physical way and nobody else before we met each other. And they live with the consequences and the doubts and, and they deal with all of the scars of decisions that they made when they wish they would have listened to the voice of God earlier. I talk to older men who hear principles about being a man of God and they say, this is great, I embrace it, I believe it. Oh, I wish I would have embraced it when I were younger. People who say, you know, I spent all of my time with a bad attitude, grumbling and complaining. Philippians 2.14 says, do everything without grumbling and complaining. I wish I would have had a better attitude in life. See, the devil wants to rob you of God's best. Can you get forgiveness? Absolutely. Can you know that you have a home in heaven by the grace of God and the cross of Jesus Christ? Absolutely. But you need to know there are horrible consequences. Jeremiah 29.11, God says, I know the plans that I have for you. God's got a wonderful plan for your life that you can miss out on because of the consequences that even though you embrace forgiveness, you miss out on some of the provisions, some of the joy that you could have had even this side of heaven. In heaven, there are even descriptions of crowns and rewards, levels and degrees of reward that we get based on our faithfulness and our trust and our attitude this side of heaven. So can God forgive? Absolutely. But there can still be horrible consequences. And so my admonition to those of you who are younger especially, don't miss out on God's best. Don't settle for less than God's best because you're going to have this attitude and we're going to grumble, we're going to complain, we're going to rebel, we're going to do what we want to do and one day we'll get right with God and get His forgiveness. By that time, you will have already 
laid up too many consequences in your life that you'd rather never have to deal with. Would you bow your heads with me?